story of the wise builder and the foolish builder. It's the story of a, a mature builder and a slightly less mature builder. Let's start with the less mature one, shall we? He's been building things for about a year now, give or take. Uh, he, he, he likes to... He likes to build the same things again and again, so at least he's consistent building his practice. He likes to build train sets. He enjoys building towers with Duplo. And as we discovered on holiday recently, he has a particular fascination with building sandcastles. I'm not talking about myself, I'm talking about my son, who he's not even, not even two years old, he's already in the building trade, you'd be very proud of him. Fantastic at building train sets, great at building towers, fantastic uh, at building sandcastles. But there are a couple of areas uh, in which I'd like him to improve. You see, by and large, he builds things so that he can destroy them. (laughs) I'm not sure that there's a more destructive power in the universe than a small boy. (laughs) They could destroy anything. If he'd let him loose on the Berlin Wall, I think he'd have knocked it down in about 10 minutes. But he likes to build things to destroy them. So the task that I have when I'm building things with him is, can I build the train set before he has turned it into a weapon? (laughs) On holiday, the deal was I'd only build sandcastles with him and his daughter if they promised not to kick them down once I built them. They didn't stick to their part of the bargain. But nonetheless, we carried on building. So I'd like him to improve in that area. I'd like him not to build things and then break them. And I trust that as he gets older, he will. There's another area that I'd like him to improve a little bit. He and I are having a feedback session this afternoon, don't worry. (laughs) Um, I'd like him to finish things when he starts them. So yesterday evening, after tea time, he was desperate to build the train set. So of course, Daddy starts building the train set. And last night, I should have taken a picture, but I built the greatest train set I'd ever built. We had tracks going under bridges and all kinds of things. It was a work of, of genius. But as I looked up, I realized that I was the only one building it because although he'd started, he'd gone off to do something else instead. You know, it's okay. He's, he's not even two years old. I'm not going to give him too much of a hard time that when he builds things, he breaks them or that when he builds things, he doesn't finish them because he's just a little boy. But when he grows up, he won't do that anymore. I know another builder. Uh, he's a little bit older than my son. He's a little bit older than me. He doesn't build train sets anymore. He doesn't build sandcastles. He doesn't build towers. He builds houses. He doesn't renovate houses. He doesn't buy them and do them up. He builds houses. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Now, he doesn't build a house so that he can knock it down. He doesn't start building a house and then not finish it. He builds houses to live in. Or sometimes he builds houses for other people to live in. And recently he was telling me a story about how he was trying to sell one of the houses that he had built. And a lady made an inquiry about coming to see the house and he wouldn't let her. And the letting agent said, well, why won't you let this lady see the house? And he said, I know she can't afford it. I know, in fact, that she can't even sell her own house. And so therefore she's in no position to buy and move into my house. Now that might seem a little unfair, but this man understood the purpose of the house he built And he understood the value of it. You see, he understood that he had built a house, not for someone to come and have a look around in and uh, and to to fantasize about living in. He builds houses for people to live in them. 
and he knows their value. He's not going to sell it for less than it's worth because he knows the work he's put into it. He knows how much it's cost him and how much he should sell it for. He's a good builder. And you know, God is a builder. Did you know that? Our God is a builder. And he's a good builder. He doesn't build things and then give up halfway through. He doesn't build things merely to break them up again. He builds with purpose. And he builds with great value. He knows exactly what he wants to build. He knows exactly how much it's worth. He knows exactly its purpose. And because he has begun building something, he will complete it. Never runs out of money, never runs out of labor, never runs out of timber, doesn't get affected by union strikes with the angels. He always finishes what he starts. In fact, it says in Hebrews that God is the builder of everything. In Hebrews chapter 11, for example, it says that Abraham was looking for the city uh, who has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Jesus said something very, very powerful, incredibly radical to his disciples. After Peter had confessed that Jesus was and is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus says, you're right, Peter. My Father has made that clear to you, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now that phrase, I will build my church, is full of revelatory power. First of all, it tells us that Jesus is the one building his church. Praise God, you and I are involved in the building work, but he started it and he's going to finish it. It tells us too that Jesus is going to build his church. Bryn Jones put it this way once, that all blessing is for building. God hasn't merely come to bless his church, but to build his church. In other words, everything that you enjoy in your life is for purpose. What's more, Jesus said, I will build my church. The church belongs to him. It's his church. I hope we see ourselves this morning as his people. There's no better privilege, is there, than being God's people. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that in Christ, we also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You and I are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In other words, God isn't building some brick house out in another part of the world. He is building a temple that he can live in, and that temple is made up of people. You and I are God's building. You and I are God's building. God is building us together, not merely so that he can uh, look at us from a distance, watch us from a telescope, but that he can dwell in us and among us. You know, the great burden, one of the great burdens of the prophets in the Old Testament was this, that God would be the God who uh, would dwell among his people. And yet Paul shows us in the New Testament that God had an even bigger plan than that, which is not only that he'd dwell among his people, but he'd actually dwell in his people. The Bible makes it clear that if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ lives in you by the Holy Spirit. The builder and architect lives in you. And I want to talk to you this morning about building. Because I believe in with God it's always time to build. Much of what God has spoken to us this morning, as we'll see, is to do with building something for his glory and fame. So we need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to build? So we're going to look at a scripture very quickly before we get on to our main one, which is in Genesis chapter 11. We're going to find out a couple of things very quickly about what the Bible says about what it means to build. 
Genesis 11. And just as I told you this morning the story of uh, a successful builder and a, a slightly more immature builder, we're going to look here, first of all, at a group of people who, who, who tried to build something unsuccessfully. And then we're going to look in a moment at people who God had called to build something. So Genesis chapter 11, and I'm reading this morning from the New Living Translation of the Bible. And verse 1 says, At one time all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, Let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, Come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them over all the world and they stopped building the city. That is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them over the world. We're not going to dwell too long on this passage. Let me just tell you three things that this shows us about what it means to build and what the Bible talks about when it talks about building. The first is this. Building brings people together with a common goal. Building brings people together with a common goal. This is what the, the men in Babel said. They said, let's build a great city for ourselves. They didn't say, I'm going to build a city and you can join in. Or all of us are going to build our own little individual towers. No, they said, let's come together and build something. Building brings people together with a common goal. The next thing is that building involves people in something bigger than themselves as individuals. Building involves Brings, involves people in something bigger than themselves as individuals. In this translation of the Bible, their reason is this. It'll make us famous, which suggests to me that if they were alive today, they'd go on the X factor. Another translation of the Bible says, let us make a name for ourselves. They were interested in something bigger than themselves as individuals. Are you interested in something bigger than yourself this morning? You see, the third thing we need to know about building, and this scripture tells us, is that what you build only lasts if it's initiated and inspired by God. What you build only lasts if it's initiated and inspired by God. The Lord scattered them, this verse says. They stopped building the city. They had an unfinished project because God wouldn't let them finish. You see, a key to building is found in Psalm 127, verse 1. It says this, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, build it, labor in vain. That's why we can be of great courage and strength in giving our life and our energy to the work of Jesus and his kingdom, the furthering of his gospel and the building of his church, because he has said, I will build my church. It gives you great confidence, doesn't it? So we're going to look this morning at a group of people who were given a command by God to build. And so turn with me, please, to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29. 
This is a fantastic portion of scripture. It's a very famous portion of scripture. It's always good to look again at scriptures that we, we know we're familiar with. I love the fact that we were read and encouraged this morning from Psalm 23. Don't allow such a, a, a scripture to become so familiar that God can't speak to you from it anymore. But do you know how amazing is it that the Lord is our shepherd? <laughs> that we have everything we need. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Jeremiah 29 verse 1 says this. Jeremiah wrote a letter from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and all the people who'd been exiled to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. This was after King Jehoiachin, the queen mother, the court officials, the other officials of Judah, and the craftsmen and artisans had been deported from Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elasa, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, when they went to Babylon as King Zedekiah's ambassadors to Nebuchadnezzar. This is what Jeremiah's letters said. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the fruit that they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that they, you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Don't listen to their dreams, because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Isn't that fantastic? Our God has plans for us which are good. They're not to harm us. They're plans that he knows. He doesn't have to root around in a drawer somewhere in, in one of his offices in heaven looking for his plan for your life. He knows it. He knows his plan for us because this was a word spoken to a people, not an individual. The plans that he has are for good. To give you a hope and a future. Not to harm you. They're plans of restoration. You know, everything that we heard testimony this morning of was a testimony of restoration. We were singing about how God had turned our mourning into dancing. That's restoration language. Because what it means is that what I had before is nowhere near as good as what I've got now. Restoration. We can look sometimes at, at, at this portion of scripture, or we can look sometimes at the promises of God, and we can uh, teleport them right into the future. And say, well, it's great. I know that God has a plan for me. I know he has a hope for me. I know he has a future for me. And we can sometimes then neglect the present. But God gave this people a very specific instruction for their present in order that their future would be as he intended it to be. 
Okay. God gave this group of people a very specific promise for the present so that their future would be as he intended it to be. What did God command them? This is what he said. Build houses. Plant gardens. Get married. Multiply. Pray. All simple things that they could do. But they had to do them. They had to do them to get the future that God had planned for them. Now this wasn't a barely made it future. This wasn't a I'm going to grab you by the scruff of your neck and rescue and bring you back to Jerusalem and you'll have barely made it. This was a promise of restoration. In other words, they were going to go back to Jerusalem in a better condition than when they left. I want you to know this morning that whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you face, you can do just the same. You can build houses. You can plant. You can marry. You can multiply. You can pray. Now, I'm not saying that you're actually going to go out and build a house this afternoon or plant a garden or even get married this afternoon. If any of you do that, you'll be in trouble with the elders. But you can do in your present whatever God has told you to do so that you get the future that he's promised you. You see, in order for these people to have the future God had promised, they had to put his word into practice in the present. In order for these people to have the future God had promised, they had to put his word into practice in the present. Let me give you an example of this from my own life. A couple of years ago now, it will be seven or eight years ago, at the end of a calendar year, the Lord spoke to me about getting married. And he spoke to me about getting married at a time when I didn't want to get married. I was single, and I was quite happy being single, and I wasn't really particularly interested in getting married. But the Lord spoke to me and said, no, next year I want you to believe, from, believe in me that I'll give you a wife. So being the man of faith I was, of course I said no. Uh, and I said, Lord, if that's you, tell me again. And he did tell me again through someone's audible voice, which was quite frightening. But at least it told me that I should have listened to him the first time. And in the course of that year, I did meet and fall in love with a young lady. Um, but I couldn't just rest on my laurels and think, well, there we go. The word's fulfilled. I had to do something. Uh, I had to ask her out on a date. I, in fact, I had to ask her out on many dates, as some of you will know. <laughs> but uh, long story, let's cut it short. God did fulfill his word. He gave me the wife he promised me, and in the time he promised me, and he all brought it to pass. Now, this isn't an advert for getting married this morning. I just want you to know this, that if I hadn't done something about the word, I'd still be single now. Because I had to do something with the word. Now, wherever you are, whoever you are, and whatever you face today, you can do something with the word. In fact, you can play a part in the purposes of God here, now, today. Not when you get older, not when you've left school, not when you're at university, not when you get a better job, not when work quietens down a bit, not when you retire, not when you move house or change church or leave for a foreign country, now, here, today. Now, here, today. In Cardiff. And its surrounding areas. 
in your home, among your friends, at your place of work, your place of study, even your place of leisure. Now, here, today, you can build. You can extend the kingdom. You can further the purposes of God. Not when something magical falls out of the sky and changes for you, but now, here, today. Have you ever disqualified yourself from serving God? Have you ever said to yourself, it couldn't possibly be me that God wants to use? Ever thought, oh, there's no way he wants me to lay hands on the sick. There's no way that he could answer my prayer. There's no way that now is the time for me to do something for God. Ever done that? I've done that. I know we've all done that. But God wants to take that mindset away from us today. When I was 10 years old, my mother came to see me one Sunday afternoon, uh, and she said to me, there's a young man preaching at the church tonight. We used to have evening meetings at those times. Uh, his name's so-and-so, and I, I knew him. She said, why don't you come in and hear him speak? I said, okay, of course. Being a very obedient and discerning 10-year-old, I did what my mum told me. And she brought me to the meeting, and she sat me on the front row. And in those days, it was in this room, but the stage seemed to be about 60 feet high. So he, in my mind, he was preaching probably where you know, the, the screen is. He seemed to be hundreds of miles away. And there I was, a 10-year-old boy sitting next to my mum on the front row. And I still remember the sermon he preached now. And he was a very passionate and excited man. He'd be about my age um, at the time. And uh, he was getting very excited. He was very animated and um, shouting and getting excited about the purposes of God. And in the middle of the sermon, he looked at me and said, James, how old are you? And I said... I'm 10. He says, I bet you sometimes think, has God got a plan for my life? I said, yeah, I do. (laughs) Trying to not be his... And he went, but he does! And then off he went with his sermon. You know, I know that man, a tremendous debt. Because when I was a teenager, and when I was a student and a young man, and I thought, I'm not quite sure what I was doing, I'd remember that night... And how even as a 10-year-old boy who knew very little, God had told me that he had a plan for my life. I want to encourage you that there is no one here too young or too old to serve the purposes of God. And if we genuinely believe that God is a God who will restore all things as spoken of by the prophets, one of the things that it means for us is that those who are going to succeed us, either our natural or spiritual children, will do greater things than we did and take things further on than we have. I really believe God wants to do that among us. You see, if there was ever a group of people who could have disqualified themselves from serving God, it was these exiles in Babylon. They were a reprobate bunch of people. They didn't listen to God. They'd ignored his commands to repent and to turn from their evil ways. And so he had sent them into exile. They thought Nebuchadnezzar had taken them into exile, but God made it very clear, no, I've sent you into exile. God says to one of the prophets that the, the sins of Judah were so bad that the land just needed a rest from all their iniquity. They were a really bad bunch of people. They were idol worshippers. They committed all kinds of atrocities. Some of them put their children through the fire in order to worship other gods. These were not a nice bunch of people. But they were God's covenant people. And he had a plan and a purpose for them, not because of anything special they had done, but because he had chosen and loved them. 
They were cut off from their homeland. They were cut off from their language. They were cut off from the temple, if any of them were interested in actually worshipping God. They were cut off from the prophets. They were cut off from everything that they knew. They, if they had been anyone who could have written themselves out from serving God, it was them. What on earth has God got for us to do? He's taken us out of our land. He's taken us away from our families. We're in this foreign country. We don't know the language. We don't know the customs. Surely God has forgotten and forsaken us. But God... Wherever you are and whoever you are always has something to say to you. And he'll do whatever it takes to get his word to you. So there were some false prophets in Babylon telling them, hey, it's going to be fine, don't worry. Two years, we'll be back in Jerusalem. But God sends a real prophet, a man called Jeremiah. And Jeremiah can't practically get there, but he can get a letter to them. And so he sends them a letter and says, this is what's going to happen. You'll be there for 70 years, but God's going to restore your fortunes. I want you to know this morning that God will do whatever he can to get his word to you. Because wherever you are and whoever you are and whatever you face, God has word for you. Do you understand that? You're never too far away from God to hear his word. You can be ignoring him as much as you can and then walk past a billboard on your way to work. And the word of the Lord is an advert from Colgate Toothpaste. You can decide that you're not going to read your Bible or pray or you ignore God completely and you listen to Radio 2 and suddenly the word of the Lord comes to you from Chris Evans. God can speak to you in any way because he, is, he has designed you to live by his word. So he'll get it to you. Now the reason why God will always get his word to you is because he's always got work for you to do. He didn't just send the... Um, these exiles words so that they could put their feet up and enjoy the exile didn't say okay boys I know you're going to be here for 70 years so just just kick back and I'll come rescue you God doesn't do rescue missions God isn't a rescuer he's a redeemer and a restorer he doesn't dive in to save you at the last possible moment when all defeat is gone that's not what he's going to do for the church He's coming back for people who are living in victory, overcoming life, glory, who are the most significant people on the face of this earth. So he says to them, I've got work for you to do. Build houses, plant gardens, get married, have children. You see, if they hadn't got married and had children, there would have been no one in 70 years for God to come and get. Obedience to the word of God today determines your future. Do you know how I respond to the word of God determines my children's future? I find that a sobering thought. I think sometimes, what kind of world do I want to leave to my children? I think I want there to be more Christians in the world than there are now. I want the church to be better prepared for Jesus' return than it is now. Because I want to leave them something that they can walk with and work with. Whatever you face today, whoever you are today, wherever you are... God has a plan for you. He has a hope for your future and a purpose for your present. So don't write yourself off from serving God. Don't write yourself off from building with God. And don't write yourself off from being involved in his purposes now. I'm going to give you four ways that you can do that. I'm going to give you four ways that you can build now where you are with God. They're all very simple. They're all going to involve a change of your attitude and a change of action. And the first one is very simple. It's this. Start where you are. Start where you are. God didn't say to the exiles, I'll get you out of Babylon, then you can start building and planting. Then you can start getting married. No. 
Wherever you are, start there. One of my heroes, Jim Elliott, a great man of God who was martyred for his faith in Ecuador in the 1950s, said this, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. I learned that lesson from a friend of mine a couple of years ago. Maybe three or four years ago I met him and at the time he had a great desire to serve God in a foreign country. But he had no skill that he could take with him and he had no finance that he could use to get out there and live on. So he was learning a skill so that he could go out there and he was working so that he could pay for his travel. But the other thing that he did that I was really impressed with was this. He was throwing himself into the life of the church community he was part of. He wasn't waiting until the by and by to go and serve God. He understood that wherever he was, he had to be all there. And I'm aware as I look around this morning, and even as I've talked to you in conversation, I know many of you have heart's desires to do things that are way beyond the city of Cardiff. You have desires and dreams that take in other parts of the country, other parts of the world. And those dreams are from God. But if you want to achieve those, get involved here. Start where you are. Don't leave your gifts on the shelf and think that you can take them up in five years' time. That's not how it works in the Word. Paul and Barnabas were sent out from Antioch to preach the gospel across different parts of the world. But when they were sent out, they weren't sat around with their feet on their desks with nothing to do. They were two of the leading men in the church. And it was when they were the two leading men in their, in their local expression, God sent them out. And do you know what? The church suffered no loss. And the kingdom suffered no loss. So I want to encourage you this morning, start where you are. Stop hiding talents under bushels. Stop putting things off and thinking, well, when I'm asked to do this, I'll do it. I'll prophesy when they ask me to. I'll evangelize when they tell me to. Just go for it. Start where you are. Start in your street, in your home, in your, in your neighborhood, in your place of work. Whatever it is that God is burning on the inside of you this morning that you need to take alive. Just do it. Just start where you are. For the exiles, this meant building, it meant planting, it meant marrying, it meant praying for Babylon. For you, it means that there's work for you to do here and now. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you face. Ask yourself this question. Jonathan asked us this last week. What's in your hand? What's right in front of you? What positive difference can you make where you live? What positive difference can you make where you work or where you study or where your children go to school? What positive difference can you make in this church? Where can you serve? Who can you help? I was greatly encouraged and challenged by Charles Smith a few weeks ago when he was sharing with us um, about the, I think it was the, the coach of the, was it the English rugby team or the British cycling team, looking for a hundred ways he could improve things by 1%. I thought to myself, wow, I could probably give you a hundred ways in which uh, you know, I'm failing or, or things aren't going well. But to actually seek to make positive change in what I'm doing for God, I like that. I've decided to do that. Do you know what? Think about this. What positive change can you make to this church community? And then do it. So start where you are. You know, where God has placed you is where he's placed you. In other words, it's not a mistake. It might be, as we heard this morning, it might be a valley of the shadow of death. But what happens when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death? You come out the other side. The next thing is this. Be active and not passive 
concerning the purpose of God. Don't live with a passive awareness that God wants to do something. Live with an active faith that says, I will be involved in doing it. You see, to be passive in the present is to forsake your future. To be passive in the present is to forsake your future. God said to these exiles, build, plant, marry, multiply, seek, pray. These are all actions. They require you to do something. Here are some phrases that active Christians will never say. I can't be bothered. That's not for me. I'm too busy. It's too late for me in life. I'll leave it to the younger generation. I'll do that when I'm older. They're all passive. Caleb said at 85, give me the mountain. A person actively aware of what God wants to achieve knows that God has work for them to do. So be active and not passive concerning the purposes of God. The next thing is this. Expect fulfillment, not frustration. I believe God wants to deliver this church from any anticipation of frustration. I hear lots of people talk about being frustrated. There is only one person who I expect to be frustrated, and that is Satan. His plans have been and will continue to be frustrated. They were frustrated at the cross. God does not have plans that are frustrated. Therefore, expect fulfillment, not frustration. God had promised these exiles fulfillment. In the translation we read, it says, I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. That's Jeremiah 29 verse 10. Another translation says this, I will fulfill my promise to you. God had told these people, and he tells us today, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare, not for evil. My notes actually say plans for welfare and for evil. I'm glad I didn't read that out. (laughs) Plans to give you a hope and a future. If you know that that's your future, if you know that your future is a future of good, of hope, then you can experience contentment in the present. And you can expect fulfillment in the days to come. If you know that God has good things for you in the future, then you can live with contentment in the present. Because you know that whatever God has promised, he's going to do. It's that simple. God has promised a good future for every Christian. He has promised a great future for this church. We can live in contentment here and now. Do things bother you? Yes. Do things upset you? Yes. Are you tempted to be frustrated? Yes. What do you do in that situation? I remember the word of God. A couple of years ago, I received a prophetic word. Some of us, a number of us received a prophetic word. Three words long. One of the best prophetic words I've ever had. Fulfillment, not frustration. It's the word I received and the number of us received when we were set in as deacons in this church. Do you know, whenever I'm tempted to be frustrated, I'm reminded that God has promised me fulfillment. A covenant-making and keeping God fulfills his promises. 
He doesn't want anybody here this morning to be frustrated. So expect fulfillment and not frustration. Fourth and final thing is this. Very simple. Let's build together. Not independently. Let's build together. For the exiles, what God had commanded them to do was designed to bring them closer together. They'd need help building houses and planting gardens. Unless, you know, they were kind of a super duper builder stroke gardener. Some of them, you see, were destined to marry each other. Some of them in turn were destined that their son would marry their neighbor's daughter. They needed one another. For the exiles to survive and thrive, they had to embrace community and they had to reject individualism and isolationism. Proverbs 18 says that the man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. Very dangerous thing, isolation. Covenant life, which is what we enjoy, appreciates individuals. But it doesn't accept individualism. Covenant life appreciates individuals. Every member of this church, every Christian, even if you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord Jesus. I want you to know that as an individual, you are precious to him. You're precious to us. When I look around this room and see people I know, you as individuals are precious to me. But I love you so much, and God loves you so much, he wants you to experience the highest form of life, which is a corporate and shared life. Covenant life appreciates individuals, but doesn't accept individualism. We're not here all building our own towers. We're not here advancing our own little purpose in the church. We are here to achieve something together for our God and Savior. I began this morning by telling you about two builders. The builder who was a child, who made things to knock them down and who didn't finish what he started. And the builder who valued his work, knowing its purpose and its worth. Ask yourself, which one are you more like? Which one are you more like? Allow the Holy Spirit to show you any areas where you need to change, where you need to grow up. And allow the Holy Spirit to encourage you in areas where you are mature. I do find the Holy Spirit tells me that I'm doing a good job. He also tells me where I need to change. Should he emphasize an area that needs to change, decide in your heart, decide in your mind, and decide in your will, you'll do whatever he tells you to grow. If this morning, as I've shared with you, you thought, I need to start where I am, let the Holy Spirit show you where you need to start. It might be with someone you sit next to at work, it might be with um, a relative, it might be with uh, someone you know uh, who lives on your street. It might be by getting involved in an area in the church's life that you've not served in before. But let the Holy Spirit show you. He knows. If you need to be active rather than passive, repent. Change the way you think towards God and his plan. Jesus put it this way. Seek the kingdom of God before anything else. If you need to embrace fulfillment and let go of frustration this morning, then do just that. Let go. You might need to forgive people. You might need to ask the Lord for forgiveness of ways that you've looked to him and not believed him. And instead, believe God's word and expect fulfillment. You might need to respond uh, to working together this morning. So show yourself friendly. 
Speak to people. Pray for people. I'm a firm believer that you'll never take the world for Jesus if you can't cross a room and meet somebody new. Let's get the big thinking into small action. Look around the room. Is there someone here you don't know? You've never spoken to them before? Walk across the room and meet them. Meet with other people. And when you meet with other people, participate in what they do. We're not looking for more attenders of meetings. We're looking to participate in the divine life together. You know, it's great to have a workman you can trust. It's great to have a workman that you can trust in the quality of their work and in the timing of their work. You know, we can trust God. We can trust his timing. We can trust his planning. And we can trust his purpose. Now let God find you a faithful and diligent builder today. Let him find you a quality servant in his kingdom. And today decide that whoever you are, you'll build. That whatever you face, you'll build. And that wherever you are, you will build. Thank you.